Prologue. My mind kept returning to that summer work program at the Board of Education. I had actually forgotten all about it until my sister brought it up when I was in my late 40s. And to that day, roughly 30 years later, she felt deep shame about it. Not for me, for herself. As if my engaging in such a work program, as a janitor, was somehow a stain on her social standing. I did run the math of it, and it made no sense. I gave the school system about 320 hours of my life in exchange for roughly 180 $1 lunches, which works out roughly to 55 cents an hour. Our mother had a lot of shortcomings, but she was no fool when it came to money. She did the household budget and had done the books for our father's small business when he sold cleaning products out of our basement. Looking back, I've come to the realization that my mother used me as a pawn for the optics of it. She had a lifelong history of positioning herself as the wounded victim, but I can easily imagine her saying, my poor son has to clean toilets because my lousy husband won't give us enough support. The reality was she never asked for any. Another reality was I really enjoyed the work that summer and learned skills I use to this day. And the final reality is that she put me in a situation where I earned 55 cents an hour at a time the minimum wage was $3.35. It seemed an odd choice on the part of my mother, considering I could have gotten a job, worked the same number of hours, literally anywhere, and earned six times as much money. Which is why I believe it was about the optics. Using one of her children to get sympathy from others was completely on brand. Skyborn, Episode 7, Family's End, by K.G. Lockrams. I'm entering my sophomore year of high school, My childhood home is divided. My brother and sister are away at college. It is just my mother and me living on the first floor, below my father and his new girlfriend. It turned out she had maintained her own place after all and was not, in the end, around every single day. My mother and I would occasionally catch a glimpse of her out the kitchen window as she'd hurry by on her way in or out. At least she had the decency to be uncomfortable. My mother would often remark, she looks just like his mother. My only memories of my paternal grandmother were after she'd developed dementia, so I had no basis of comparison. I also did my best not to look at the woman. I remained silent on the matter and still carried the belief their divorce was all my fault, even though I had a lifetime of memories of him abusing her to the point where a divorce would have seemed likely and a relief. Your father always did have a Peter Pan complex. Never wanted to grow up. My brother and I rarely spoke after he'd beaten me so badly that night when my mother was at Bridge Club. His leaving for college lifted a huge weight from my shoulders. His behavior continued to be erratic and violent, and I couldn't stand to be in his company. In the end, aside from Dad's abuse, we had nothing in common. As for my sister, she'd come home to do her laundry every so often, but did her best to steer clear of the whole situation between our parents. She hadn't gotten along as well with our mother after she'd given her no support in the wake of our father molesting her. Bobby had started working at a local family-owned grocery store. It was the same family that owned the bowling alley, and I got a job there too. Bobby and I had so much fun working together. My job was to price and stock merchandise as well as work the cash register. Bobby worked in produce. I've always looked at work as learning another set of skills that got me that much closer to getting away. Bobby and I would go on breaks together and sit behind the two-way mirrored sliding glass doors of the produce section and people watch. Watching people when they don't know they are being observed is fascinating. It was interesting how many people would eat the grapes right off the vines without buying them, grazing along the produce counter. 
Anytime Bobby caught someone eating from the display, he'd wait for them to turn to walk away, slowly slide the mirrored glass door open, and throw one of whatever they'd eaten at them and close the glass. One time he saw someone pocket a lemon, and after they'd turned, he threw one at the guy and hit him squarely in the back. The look of abject terror on the man's face still makes me smile. Just the random surprise of it all. To think you're alone and getting away with something, only to have that same thing you just stole hit you squarely in the back. I took a public speaking class that fall semester, run by the same teacher who led the drama club, and she asked me to audition. I did, and made a new friend, Tony. Bobby and Claire were spending so much time together I had a lot of free time on my hands. Tony was also in choir, though we hadn't spoken much, and the drama club was the catalyst for us getting to know one another. He was also on the tennis team, and asked me one day if I'd like to learn how to play. I'd put on 25 pounds since my freshman year, so I said yes. And honestly, between Claire and the inevitability that I'd be moving out of the neighborhood and away from Bobby's orbit, I was probably building some distance into our relationship. By now, I truly was jealous of Claire. My feelings for Bobby hadn't changed in two years, but there was just no way I could be with him in the way I wanted to be with him. Tony and I began playing tennis together at least once a week. He was a year ahead of me and had his driver's license, and I'd either ride my bike to the tennis courts near the grocery store where Bobby and I worked, or he'd pick me up and drive us. I enjoyed tennis and was getting pretty good. Not as good as Tony, but I was getting to the point where I could win the odd game or two. I had arranged for Tony to sleep over one weekend. One upside to my parents' separation was that I could have people over more easily. Tony was only the second friend of mine to spend the night at my house. I brought an old cot from the basement up to my room and set it next to my bed so we would be at the same level, rather than him on the floor and me in my twin bed. We played tennis together that Saturday, and he was kicking my ass. He had a game coming up and was using our time together to truly go all out on the court. Game after game, he beat me. Stop being such a... And I pulled my shorts down and flashed in my dick. He laughed and did the same thing. Back at ya. He finished kicking my ass and we went back to my house, got cleaned up, ate dinner, watched TV, then got ready for bed. We were laying in our beds, talking about whatever, when I asked, Do you ever look at other guys? I'm looking at one now, he said. I paused and assessed the moment and what I knew of him. There were times at his house when he would play footsies with me under a blanket as we'd watch TV. He once massaged my crotch with his foot and pretended not to have been aware of it, which is impossible. I mean, really look at a guy. Like, because you think he's attractive. Well, he said hesitantly, I sometimes get hard sitting next to one of the guys from the team on bus trips for tennis matches. Me too, I said. There's a guy at my bus stop that has complete leg hair. Last week he was sitting next to me on the bus, and his leg kept rubbing up against mine, and I got the biggest heart on. He got out of the cot and pushed it up next to the mattress and got back in. Do you mind? he asked. No. I turned on my side to look at him. He turned away and then pushed himself against me. I was taller than he was, and we were laying there, spooning. Is this okay? he asked. Yeah. We were both breathing faster than normal and stayed like this for a couple of minutes. The intimacy of it was wholly new to me. This was the intimacy I had longed to have with Bobby for years. I knew Tony had to feel my erection against his buttocks, but neither of us made a move. Finally, I couldn't take it any longer and put my arm over his abdomen. Half of my hand was on his t-shirt and half on his bare belly. He didn't say anything. I slid my hand inside his blue shorts 
and he was also hard. Still, neither of us said a word. And because I'd been taught that sex was affection and was attracted to him, I asked, do you want me to suck it? If you want to, I did. Roll on your back and pull your shorts down. And I went down on him. After a while, he said, my skin is getting sensitive. And so I stopped. Do you want to suck me? I asked, expecting he would, all things considered. No. I was crushed and felt embarrassed and ashamed. I clearly did not misread anything. What just happened? He got out of the cot and pulled it away from the bed. I got up to use the bathroom. Wow, he said. You're really getting fat. When I got back into bed, neither of us spoke. I was pissed by his fat comment. At that age, if I was angry, I couldn't speak. I would just lock down. After a time, he asked, Did you get any? Meaning his load. Seriously? He couldn't tell if he climaxed. I wanted to ask, Did you give any? But instead, I simply said no. And we didn't say another word to each other. The next morning, my mother was out of the house first thing, and he and I were having cereal and orange juice. He acted as if nothing had happened. About last night, I said, and trailed off, leaving my question to hang in the air, unasked. I was drunk, he said. On what? I asked. He left the room, sat down in front of the TV, and changed the topic. We continued to hang out and play tennis. We were cast in a four-person play together that fall and spent time running lines. I spent the night at his house many times. He introduced me to a bunch of his friends, but nothing like that ever happened between us again, and it was never discussed. I was so confused by it, but never brought it up again. As I was trying to figure out my sexual identity, Elroy had his fully understood. Oddly, we never spoke about it. I had the luxury of being able to pass a straight. He did not. Other than his stepfather's open disdain for him in general, Elroy didn't seem to be on the receiving end of much bullying, at least none that I was aware of. He was fortunate to be talented, which gave him some social status. He had a visible crush on a fellow bandmate and upperclassman. The more obvious it became, the more I felt potentially exposed to the transitive property of homophobia, my own and those around me. It had been years since I'd fooled around with a peer, and I just had my first full-fledged homosexual experience with Tony. I was old enough that I couldn't just chalk it up to idle curiosity. Well, I could have, but I knew it was more than that. I felt what I'd done with Tony had crossed some line regarding my sexuality, and in my insecurity over it all, I pulled away from Elroy. I was afraid of guilt through association and added distance between us. I was a coward in the face of his doing his best to bravely live his life as his authentic self. Things became different between my mother and I that year. Her eldest two were busy with school and avoiding the house, and so all she had day to day was me. We'd have dinner together, watch TV together. It turned out we had similar senses of humor now that we were able to show them to one another. One of the cruelest things our father did to us was rob us of humor. He was miserable, and if we showed any happiness, he'd squelch it. Without him around, we were both able to enjoy moments of laughter. How sad we didn't come to learn this about one another until I was 15. However, I still spent more time with Bet than with my own mother. Christmas came, and there weren't twice the presents. I don't recall my father getting me anything that year. He spoke to me only a couple of times after he divided the house, and even then just in passing. My anger toward him grew the more we were apart. He could sense it. 
The week before my 16th birthday, my father stopped me outside the house and asked if he could take me to dinner to celebrate. I instantly went on alert. Why? You haven't been around me for my birthday in years, I said. It'll be fun. I'll take you to Chi-Chi's. Chi-Chi's was my favorite restaurant. Come on, he said. It would not be fun. Time with him was never fun. We hadn't discussed the blowjob offer. We hadn't discussed my mother calling me upstairs and asking me if I was a faggot. We hadn't talked about anything meaningful, ever. It was a ploy. I just didn't know what his endgame was. And yet he was my father, and I wanted him to love me. I want you to finally meet Michelle, he said. And there it was. I don't want to meet her. If you want to take me out for my birthday, okay. But I don't have any interest in meeting that woman. He paused for a moment. Fine, he said. My birthday came, and he said he'd pull up out front after work and honk. It was dark early at that time of year, and sure enough, he pulled up from the opposite direction, so the driver's side was toward the house, and honked. He rolled down his window as I approached. My stuff is on the passenger seat, hop in the back. I ran to the car, got in the back seat, behind him, and he pulled off immediately. Jeez, at least wait until I'm in the car. I was looking down to find the lap belt. Hello, Kit. I'm Michelle. Son of a bitch. I did not see that coming. You said you weren't going to bring her, I said, ignoring her. I lied. Which, ironically, was probably the first honest thing he'd ever said to me. I don't remember anything after that. I dissociated to get through it. I remember the getting in the car, the getting home, and the running inside and slamming the door so hard the house rattled. That was the last time I spoke to my father. It was late spring, and we were in rehearsals for the school musical. Bobby, Tony, and I were all cast members, and Claire would often hang out and do her homework during rehearsals. One Friday night, Bobby called me and asked me to come over. I need a favor, and you're the only one I trust to do it, he said. Okay, I'll be right over. Bring your camera. Okay. Well, that was odd. And a flash cube. Got it. See you in ten minutes. I got to his house, and no one else was home. He took me downstairs to the rec room. What's up? I want to do a nude picture to give to Claire. Holy crap. What was happening? You want me to take a picture of you naked? I asked in disbelief. Yeah, I think she'll either find it funny or sexy, so I can't lose either way. I was flooded with emotions and frozen in place. Don't just stand there, he said, taking off his clothes. My mom is going to be home soon, and I want to get this done before I lose my nerve. I still hadn't moved. Kit, get your ass in gear. Hand me that blanket and get the camera ready, he said. I did as he directed. He put the blanket over himself, turned away from me, and shimmied out of his briefs. Okay, he said. Are you ready? I put the flash cube on my camera and called back. Yep. Okay, here goes. He turned around in such a way that he was facing me at a 45-degree angle silhouette, wrapped in the blanket. Ready? Ready, I said. And standing not four feet away... He threw his arms wide open and revealed himself to me. He stood there, stark naked and beautiful. He'd grown chest hair since the last time I'd seen him shirtless in a locker room. Same with his pubic hair and leg hair. He'd also been working out and had clearly defined pecs and quads. He was fully erect and well endowed. I pulled my eyes away from his body and looked at his face, his beautiful face, with his hazel eyes and dark blonde hair and my entire being ached for him. Take a picture, it will last longer, he laughed. And so I did. 
Take another just to be sure. And I did. Two weeks later, I picked up the film from the local photomat, terrified they would have flagged the pictures as being pornographic. When I got home, I went into my bedroom and opened the envelope. And there he was. I held the picture and admired him, knowing I would never be able to be with him in the way I wanted. I put the pictures back into the envelope and arranged to go to his house. Let's see. I handed him the pictures and the negatives. Wow, she's going to love this. Do you think she'll love this? He asked excitedly. Sure, I said, and then told him I needed to go home. I don't remember how Claire reacted to the pictures. We did the spring musical. Someone released a greased pig at school, and the school year came to a close. Having finished her freshman year, my sister moved back into the house. She started her summer job working at a store near the bridge where Larry had killed himself. Our brother had just finished his junior year of college and moved in with our father. None of this lasted long, as our father bought our mother out of the house at the end of the month, and then sold it the following one as they finalized their divorce. The day after their divorce was final, his marriage license to Michelle ran in the largest area newspaper. I had no insight in the final terms of their divorce. I knew there was no alimony, no child support, and no shared custody. My father cut bait and wasted no time moving on with his life. That year they were separated is a dark and depressing blur for me. Soon after our father had bought our mother out of the house, she announced she'd found a place to rent. I was not involved in the process or decision in any way. The day she took me to see it, she talked about its selling points on the way over. It's near the bowling alley, so there's that, she said. I haven't bowled in years, I replied knowing its proximity to the bowling alley meant it was in the worst part of town. It's close to the train station, she said, which again translated to worst part of town, and close to the rail line, which meant noisy. We had never gone anywhere by train, so that was a stretch as selling points go. It's close to the high school and the hospital, she went on. She had quit working at the small gynecologist's office by this point in order to take a full-time job at the local hospital. She needed the health care and the better salary. As we pulled up in front of a run-down, two-story home that hadn't been updated in more than 20 years, I said, This? This is where we're moving? It was on a fenced-in corner lot with children's toys strewn around the front porch and yard. Are the current people moving out at the end of the month? I asked. No, I rented the first floor. The second floor is a separate unit, and they have kids. Terrific, I thought. Nothing worse than people living above you. Come inside and check it out. We got out of the car, and I immediately did not feel safe. There was a notorious apartment complex just around the corner and behind the house. It was known for drug deals and violence. Alongside the house was the road leading to them. Beyond the road was the rail line. There was trash everywhere I looked. We stood on the front porch as she looked for the key in her purse. I turned around, and the view directly opposite the house was a two-story cement wall of the bridge that ran over the railway tracks. It blocked most of the light from reaching the first floor windows of the house. Here we go, she said brightly, and opened the door. I was immediately assaulted by the smell of cat urine. What's that smell? I asked, knowing exactly what it was, as cleaning the litter box was my job at home. Don't worry about it. The landlord said he'd have the rugs cleaned. Upon entering the apartment was the living room. Next was the kitchen on the right, and a small dining room opposite on the left. I think the dining room was bigger once, and they divided it into one of the bedrooms, she said. 
Next up on the left was said small bedroom. I was thinking this could be your room. It would barely fit my twin bed and desk. The smell got worse as we went deeper into the house. What's that other smell? I asked. Fuel oil. There's an oil tank in the basement of the kitchen. Jesus, I thought quietly to myself. We went by a small bathroom. I'll take this bedroom, and this one can be used by your brother or sister when they're here. I must have had a horrified expression on my face. It's not forever, just until I figure out my finances and buy a house. A mortgage is almost 14%, and her positivity fumbled a bit. It's all I can afford right now. I looked around the dark, filthy apartment with the stained and smelly carpeting and accepted the situation. Okay, when do we move in? The end of July when we get back from your grandmother's. I don't remember that trip to see my grandmother. I don't remember the move. In fact, that whole year is almost entirely blank. My father would have packed up his apartment, which included the attic, but at no point was I allowed to take any of my things out. The childhood toys I had never made the move and were lost to me. I'm sure they were simply thrown away. I'm sure at some point my mother discussed with me what we'd take or leave. We had an entire basement of furniture, and her father had all of his tools in the unfinished part of the basement. I would have said some kind of goodbye to Bobby and Bet, but I don't have any memories of packing up and leaving the house. My go-to coping mechanism has always been forgetting. In my memory, I go from living in my well-kept childhood home in a nice neighborhood where I spent years being abused, to living under a bridge in a dark, dreary, shithole apartment that always smelled of fuel oil and cat piss. At least the apartment was honest about what it was. That was something.